0: This morning's message will be taken from 1 John, chapter 1. And we'll be considering the next in our series of the vision for heritage, the church as a covenant community. The church as a covenant community. The key word, as we have already mentioned, Perhaps seen, and we will see it again here, is the term fellowship, koinonia, partaker of, communion, shares with. It's all the same uh, translation of the very same word. and We'll see it four times here as you will listen or read with me in the Word of God beginning at chapter 1, verse 1 of 1 John. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. This is the message which we have heard from Him and declare to you, that God is light, and in Him no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Our gracious Father, open our ears now to attend to the word that You have laid out before us. This life, this eternal life that we have in Christ, this relationship we have with God through Him. And we pray that You would open up our ears And that you would open our eyes and may our hearts be attentive to your word. Spirit, I call upon you who has given us this word of truth and ask that you would work in each of our lives, penetrating it deeply into our lives, weaving it into the fabric of who we are as your people. And we pray you would square us up with the truth and sanctify us here this day. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. may be seated. When I pastored a church in Atlanta, we had a small congregation of mostly commuters. Some of you were a part of that work. Others have visited that work. And we were in a section of one of the fastest growing areas, not only in the city, but in the country when we began. But we were only able to meet on the Lord's Day. Our church membership was spread out geographically. We didn't and we couldn't have a midweek men's Bible study or a ladies ministry or choir. We didn't have or couldn't have. Regular church dances. In fact, we only really saw each other one day a week, and that was on the Lord's Day. There were few exceptions to that, of course, but even our current Lord's Day schedule that you have pretty much embraced and have taken for granted was really an outworking of that commuter model that we had, because if everybody left and came back to an evening worship, there wouldn't be no evening worship. So we just kind of moved everything and scrunched it together so that when we came together for prayer time and we had lunch together and we stayed together for a second service, Then, uh, so that has really just been a culture that we have had from the very beginning and it came up here with us as well. But it really was an outgrowth of a commuter model church that we were we really didn't have a local ministry or a local identity in the community that in which we lived, and as I kept coming across the one another's in Scripture, I wondered how we could even live these things out as a people of God. To To care for one another, to serve one another, to admonish one another, to comfort one another, to edify one another, to confess our sins to one another, pray with one another, pray for one another, be hospitable to one another, and ministering our gifts to one another. Those are just a few of those one another's that I began wondering, how could we live this thing out? I became very dissatisfied with the way things were, feeling like we weren't really living the gospel When I began doing a little bit more study on the covenant, in fact a lot more study on the covenant, I knew theologically this was not the way for any church to live. Long story short, that's why heritage in Centerville exists. A few families, some 13 plus years ago, moved out of the suburbs of Atlanta to begin a church, this church, specifically as a covenant community church where everyone would intentionally live close together so that the gospel life could be lived out with one another in the community and with the community around us. So our purpose in moving here was essentially to plant a multi-generational church rooted in a community where we would all live close to one another and live out the gospel life. That's what brought us here. That's why people made sacrifices to come here, to move here. And and that is a key part to the vision of our congregation. It's not a key part to just this congregation, however. It should be really definitive of really what the church is. How it is to be lived out. In John 13, Jesus says, "...by this..." All will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Each Lord's Day we recite the Apostles' Creed and as we come to the Lord's Supper and at the very end of that creed we have a particular phrase because it's grouped in with other phrases and we maybe tend to skip over them a little bit too quickly but I believe in the communion of saints. Now just for... Convenience sake, I happened to put on the back, since we had a blank sheet on the back of the liturgy, um, chapter 26 of the Westminster Confession, Communion of Saints. So important is this principle that our confession put it right in there as an entire chapter and spoke to that. And while this is not notes for the sermon, it certainly is applicable to the message this morning because that's what. We are called. We, the, the, the Apostles' Creed has been a, a creed since about the second century in the church, both in the East and the West, both Protestant, Orthodox, and Roman Catholics alike have embraced this creed historically. And we believe in the communion of saints. We should not only believe it, but it needs to be a part of who we are, part of our identity. And so this morning I wish to speak on you on the subject that the church is a covenant community, the communion of saints. First, I want to note some very theological principles of this term of Christian fellowship, this Christian koinonia. The biblical fellowship goes far, far, far beyond what we typically use the term fellowship for. Hey, would you like to come over from my house this evening for fellowship? We tend to use that, meaning we'll probably have some food and maybe drink together. We will talk. We'll sit on our couches or we'll go outside and we'll do some things together. And that is certainly a part of it, but that is a small, small part of it. I can do that with the world. The world can do that with each other, but the world cannot have this kind of fellowship. And we cannot have this kind of fellowship with the world. Four times the term fellowship, or koinonia, is used in this passage, and it is used 19 times in the Bible, and so when four times are in this passage, this is a pretty loaded passage. The first time we're introduced to that particular term is in that second chapter of Acts that we read earlier, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread, and in prayers. Well, wow, fellowship is right up there, right along with biblical doctrine, the Lord's Supper, and praying. And it's not just simply going over to somebody's house for dinner. And in fact, we meditated from that third chapter of Philippians as we began our worship today, that I might know Christ and the fellowship of His sufferings, the Apostle Paul would say. The fellowship of the sufferings of Christ was something that the Apostle desired to know and to grow in. So there's something very special about this fellowship as it pertains to Christians. It occurs among ourselves with God. This is a fellowship we have as Christians with God. It is also varied in a very complex word and is translated in a, a number of ways to show that breadth and that complexity, to be partakers of something along with somebody else, to share in that something, to have something in common with somebody else. It's where we get the word communion. Common comes from that term. Um, And so the first principle of this koinonia, this fellowship, is that the communion, this this kind of fellowship, Christian fellowship, of the saints is covenantal. That's the first principle I'd like for us to think about theologically. Fellowship, Christian fellowship is covenantal. It's rooted in our relationship with Christ. Christ. So the third verse of this passage says, That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship that we have is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Now this should be a desire of all that we have for even the lost in the world, that we desire that they would have fellowship with us, but only in the kind of fellowship that we have with the Father through Jesus Christ. And then as they come to know Christ, and they will know you because of this fellowship, because of this love, they'll be drawn into this, And that as they come to Christ, not only do they have this fellowship with God in Christ, but they then join in the family of God, and we have fellowship one with another. This is what the apostle is getting at throughout the entire epistle. One's relationship with God changes status with his people. When he comes out of the world into a relationship with God, his status, even with God's people, then changes. One's relationship with God is expressed in, and it is lived out in relationship with God's people. In a nutshell, here we have the concept of a covenant community. So Koinonia is built upon God's redemptive covenant. And in order to understand what it means in Acts 2.42, when they continued in fellowship, we have to understand this covenant and the covenant community that the church is declared to be. So let us consider this for just a few minutes here as the church itself. The very word means a called-out people. Ek. Out of, klesia, called. We are called out. That's the term. When God saves us out of the world, he saves us into himself, and so he assembles God's people together as a people who are called out of the society and culture of the world, and there we mean world system, which is the system of principles, principles, that is governed by the God of the world, the God of this age, the evil one, Satan, and we have been delivered out of that into the kingdom of light. And when we have been delivered out of darkness into the kingdom of light, and we are in this kingdom of God with Christ, we have been called out of that system into a new system, into a different kingdom. Into different structure, into different governing principles, into a different kind of law. And that is why the apostle would say in Galatians 6, he says, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The church is a people that have been redeemed by Christ and Crucified to the world. They've been called out of the world to be a holy people. And that word holy just it really means to be set apart. To be set apart. When God calls us to Himself out of the world system and establishes us as a body of people, we have our own system. It's really God's system, but we are brought into this commonwealth. We are brought into a kingdom of light. We have our own worship. Don't think the world doesn't have their own worship. The world does. Even atheists have their own worship. Everybody worships something. We have our own culture, we have our own language. We have our own vocabulary. We have our own songs. We have our life, and it's together. And this is where the term koinonia continues to show up over and over in those nineteen references in the New Testament. First Corinthians one nine says, "God is faithful by whom you, plural." were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We were called unto the fellowship with Christ himself. In fact, it is a very mystical and, and a difficult and mysterious way to understand that when Christ died and was buried... You, in your union with Jesus Christ, died with him and was buried with him, and you are raised to walk in newness of life. That's Romans 6. That's part of the communion that you have with Christ. But you do not have this communion with Christ merely alone, for all other saints are also in that same thing. So the church is a called out people in relationship with God, and by virtue of their relationship with God, which is covenantal, they are by necessity in covenant with one another. And so the second point that I'd like to make is that the second principle is that the church is a covenant people in relationship with God and with one another. They are called out, but they are in covenant. Now let me just rehearse a few of the basics of the covenant. And the covenant is is also a a complex theological development in the scriptures. And so I don't want to treat it merely as a contract. It is not a contract. And in fact, there is the covenant that we have with God, which is not a bilateral kind of agreement. It is a unilateral type of an agreement of which we don't have many of these earthly kinds of unilateral agreements. But there are covenants between people. There are covenants between bodies of people. A covenant is an agreement between two or more persons, and along with that agreement, there are oaths and vows and commitments and promises that if you are faithful to your side of the agreement, then you receive covenant blessings and benefits by virtue of that relationship being lived out faithfully. But there's also likewise curses that come along with those covenant vows and oaths so that if you are not faithful, you have received the curses of that covenant relationship. The one thing is that there is no neutral ground in that covenant relationship. Now a covenant can be between two people alone, like there was a covenant between David and Jonathan. It can be a covenant between a husband and a wife, as Malachi would say. But it can also be between more than two people. You might recall in the time when Joshua was beginning to go in and and take control and take dominion over the promised land that God was leading them, and there were some that were fearful, the Gibeonites. And the inhabitants of Gibeon came and they feigned that they were from a far away country because they knew that they were going to be next on the chopping block. And so what Joshua did is he established a covenant with the inhabitants of Gibeon, not knowing that they were a part of the land. Inhabitants of Gibeon came and they kind of feigned that they had moldy bread and they had worn out clothes that they put on so that they would convince Joshua with which he did not seek the Lord's wisdom on. and should be a lesson for us all. Um, But assuming that they were truthful, they were from a far country, not a part of the inhabitants of the land, he agreed and he made a covenant with the people of the inhabitants of Gibeon and covenanted that he would not destroy them. The nature of that covenant between more than two people is such that it binds all of the individuals on both sides of that agreement together. In verse nine or first fifteen of chapter nine it says, So Joshua made peace with them, and he made a covenant with them to let them live, and the rulers of the congregation swore to them. So then they came into their cities, and they then learned that these were, in fact, the people that we made a covenant with. They weren't from a far-off country. And Joshua confronted them and says, well, why did you lie to us? He said, well, we knew you were going to kill us. And it upset the people. Chapter 9 verse 18 says, But the children of Israel did not attack them because the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel that they wouldn't. And that all the congregation complained against their rulers. Then all the rulers said to the congregation, We've sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel, now therefore we may not touch them. They were all bound by this covenant. That's covenantal. That's not individualistic. That's not autonomous. That's not the way we generally think in America today. It is a covenantal framework. And the covenantal principle is this. If you're a part of a body of people that makes a covenant with another person or body of people, then we are all bound together in covenant to fulfill its obligations, lest we bring the wrath of God down upon us. Now that, that binding has two different respects. First of all, we as a people, if this side of the congregation made a covenant with this side of the congregation, then this group of people, and let's say Jay is the spokesman here and the, the leader, and he's going to make a covenant with with. Patrick and and as they make this covenant now both sides and all body over here is bound to this covenant and everybody over here is bound to their side of the agreement of the covenant and everybody's in it. And so when this side covenants together with side B then they are bound side A is bound to side B to fulfill the agreement of that covenant. But even if a representative head like a Jay and Patrick are making these covenant with each other in representing the people as part of a covenant relationship, now everybody here is in covenant with each other and are bound. And everybody over here is in covenant and are bound. And y'all are in covenant with each other. So if you are Israelites and you are the inhabitants of Gibeon, someone back there couldn't go and kill someone back there just because these two made the covenant we're all bound now in some ways we have been grown we've grown up and we've fostered a particular spirit that is anti-covenantal and we kind of resist this well, that's not fair. That wasn't my decision. And we go right on and on and on and on and on until we come to the fact that we realize that we were all in Adam and we were all, we all sinned in him. That's a covenant head. And then we come to the place where we realize that there's actually blessings in this because in Christ we have all been made alive, and so he is our covenant head. But that is the covenant Relationship that God has established from the very beginning, all the way from Genesis, all the way through the end, and we have to adjust ourselves to that biblical relationship that God establishes with his people and by virtue unites us all together as one body. Now, that's a theological framework. So, this covenantal principle is it binds everybody together in the respects of the nature of that covenant. And that covenant is a type of relationship that the believer comes to to God in Christ in. God does not relate to any of his creatures humanly, human creatures apart from covenant at all. A covenant relationship was already established when woman came into the world. He created this covenant relationship with Adam. Hosea 6-7 says that and everyone, like Adam, broke the covenant. So while the word covenant is not mentioned in Genesis 2, it is referred to by later in Scripture and reflects back on it. Just like the covenant with David was not mentioned at all in 2 Samuel chapter 7, but then we have other Scriptures like uh, Psalm 132 and Psalm 89 that reflects back to that time when that covenant was established. We all are in a covenant relationship with God. Every person. There are many covenant breakers in the world today. The world And that's why they need the fulfillment of the covenant in Christ. And so all of this is covenantal. As you come into a covenant relationship with God, you embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That is the way that you have this relationship with God because He is the federal head of a new race, of a new people. And you come into the body for which He died. But by virtue of your relationship with Jesus Christ and God, you come into a relationship with all the other members in covenant with Him. See, the covenant is a Trinitarian principle. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, they all covenanted together in a relationship through how they were going to work out the salvation of God's people But they also are in this wonderful blessed relationship where the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father and the the Son does the Father's will and the Father shows Him everything to come to pass, John 5. And, And then the Spirit has been given without measure so that the Son can complete the work and there's this communion and love in this work already before God says, let there be light. We are brought up into this society, not as individuals, but as the holy society before God. Now, notice in this passage the relationship between your fellowship with Christ and your fellowship with His people. Verse 6 says, if we say we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and the truth is not in us. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. See how he, he said a lot in that second sentence there. Lot was implied. Not only do we have fellowship with Christ, but we have fellowship with one another. And Christ's blood cleanses us all. The passage instructs us first of that claimed fellowship, but which may be really false. If someone says he has claim on Christ and has fellowship with with God in Christ, but he does not walk in the light, and he walks in darkness He lies. He doesn't practice the truth. That's not true. That fellowship is not genuine. But if we walk in the light as Christ is in the light, we not only have fellowship with Christ, but we have fellowship with one another, and those two cannot be separated. It's covenantal. Christ is the head of the church. He is the covenant head. And whatever the covenant head has declared, it binds us all who are in Him to be true. And whatever happens with the covenant head, it will happen with His people. And that is why it's such a blessedness to know that He is the first fruits of our resurrection, and in Him we have life, and we have it abundantly, and we have triumph and victory. So this is covenantal. If you're, communion, if you're in communion and fellowship with Christ, you are a partaker of his death. You are a partaker of his resurrection. You are a partaker of his life and of his blood and of his flesh. The two will become one, and I'm speaking about Christ and the church. The very nature of that relationship binds us in a covenant relationship one with another. It's not an optional thing. It's not something I sign up for. It's not something I agree or disagree to, or it's not something that I think about, oh, well, I'm going to join the church or not join. No, 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 no. (laughs) This is all way beyond all of that And the theological basis of the very relationship that we have in Christ and therefore in one another. And that's why the church is a covenant community. We are all bound together in the bonds of a covenant relationship that God the Father and God the Son established before the foundation of the world and brought us into this relationship, not merely as individuals, though He does work in individuals' hearts, but He brings us together into a collective corporate body. And that relationship with one another is very much like a marriage. That's why Malachi calls the covenant a a covenant relationship. Marriage is a covenant relationship. Now I think it's worth going ahead and expounding um, a little bit more of that relationship. That covenant relationship, as we know, is defined when you th- think you have a relationship with somebody, there's, there's going to be some boundaries or how you understand that relationship. Oh, I'm a friend with so-and-so. Or I'm his sister. I'm his brother. Or I'm, he's, my, he's my father. Or, or he's my boss. There's a relationship, but there's something that's going to define that relationship. A covenant relationship is, is defined and expressed in, in two aspects. Theologians have toyed for a long time to try to define how these two aspects can be properly termed or identified, but they are nonetheless all in agreement that there's two aspects to a covenant relationship. And for the lack of a better word, I'll use the term a legal aspect, although I know that that word can have some baggage that can be misleading, but there's also the familial bond. So let's think about the covenant relationship with, number one, a legal aspect, and then a familial bond. A couple of weeks ago, No, about a little over a week ago. We saw two people, a husband and a wife, or a future husband and wife, a man and a woman, standing together and they're taking vows together. As soon as those vows were ratified before God, they became husband and wife. That's the legal aspect. Now the world out there, tends to do it a little differently. While there's marriages out there, but they may not respect really what that means, and they may go through... But the fact of the matter is, when you make vows before God to each other in the bonds of marriage, you are a married couple. That's what makes that a legal aspect. It makes it legal in the civil magistrate's mind, but it's also legal in the ecclesiastical court and it's legal in the familial jurisdiction. So that even households are now considered uh, in its own right. That's the first part of a covenant. Every covenant relationship has that legal aspect that includes the, the covenant bond with oaths or promises or vows. And there are consequences... And there are blessings that are associated with those oaths and vows. Well, the second part of the covenant is a familial bond. Love, in a Christian sense. That's the familial bond. There is the spirit that goes in along outside of the 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 legal aspect, there is truly the fidelity of spirit and faithfulness to the intent of what that covenant is all about. Even a husband and wife may stop loving each other, but yet they are still married. But while they're not living in the intention or the fulfillment of that relationship or the vows that they made with each other, there will be a Resulting curse upon that relationship. There'll be an unhappy marriage, or, or perhaps worse. But if they do fulfill their vows in genuine love, the blessings are enjoyed with covenant blessings. Christians are those in a covenant relationship with God, which also has these two aspects to them one is that legal aspect. Signified in baptism. This is the taking of a person and setting them apart unto God into the covenant body of people. And baptism is that which signifies and ratifies that relationship between God and the subject or the person. It identifies the person who is baptized with Christ by vows and this legal, when I say legal, in this ecclesiastical commitment. But secondly, there is a familial bond. There is a genuine Christian love which is working in faith that is a part of that covenant relationship. And when you're baptized, whether you're an adult and you come to faith and then you are baptized, or you are an infant of a believing parent, you come into a covenant relationship with God. Now I know there are a lot of people think that every relationship with God has to be salvific, and this is intended to be. But No, every person is in a covenant relationship with God. Everybody is. The majority of the people in the world, or the people in the world that are not saved in Jesus Christ, are in a covenant relationship with God, albeit they are breaking the covenant and under the wrath and the curse of the covenant. And unless they come to Christ as a new head of a covenant that has been fulfilled, then they have no hope and they will forever go into eternity with the wrath of God executing righteous judgment upon them for breaking the vows of the covenant. You say, well, that's not fair. That is fair. That's righteous. And yet, while they still have breath, you still have hope. You can come to Christ, you can have a new head, you can have new blessings. But see, when someone is baptized into the covenant church, into the church, that baptism doesn't save you. It didn't save Simon in Acts 8, who was a believer and baptized, and then later found that the root of bitterness was in his heart, and he really wasn't regenerated to begin with. It didn't, didn't save a, a, a Baptist, and it doesn't save a Presbyterian. But it does identify this covenant relationship with Christ and it obligates us to believe. To come into the fidelity of the very consummation and fulfillment of the blessedness of this covenant. I think you can see the analogy there with a husband and wife making their vows together before God and and then enjoying uh, their time timed together in familial bonds of love. Now that legal aspect of that covenant relationship is identified and ratified in baptism. The familial bond in that covenant relationship is this faith that's working in love or a love working through faith. A faithful Christian is one who is in union with Christ by faith And you will never come into union with Jesus Christ apart from faith. But as you come into union with Jesus Christ and bowing your knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and giving up your life and giving Him over, giving yourself over to Him, you come into a union with Christ. And you walk in the light. You've been taken out of darkness and put into the kingdom of light. And that unites you together with Him in a mystical way and yet with him, with his people, in fellowship, in communion together, in love. It's just the way it is. It's not the way a lot of the church believes today. It's not a way that a lot of the church lives today. Isolated, apart from the church, not involved in a church, individualistic in their approach. Not thinking about the catholicity of the church. but I'm going to do it my way. That is not God's way. And that is why I think it behooves us to continue to grow in this understanding of what it means to be in covenant with God and covenant with one another. I confess that it is not a part of our natural fiber. We have to continue to to make decisions each day about living in conformity to this so that it will become second nature, but it certainly isn't our first nature. These are some of the theological principles of the church being a covenant community. By definition, the church is the covenant community. It's not just A, it's not an option, but it is by definition what the church is. But to live that out faithfully, that familial aspect of the covenant faithfulness, to enjoy the blessedness of it, that has to be lived out practically. And I want to give you four applications of practically living this thing out so that that familial aspect is consistent with what the legal boundaries and guidelines and what those vows should declare. Number one, a practical living out of the covenant community, the church as a covenant community, is this. Living holy lives is faithful to the covenant community. Living holy lives. In fact, that is a characterization of this community. That's why Paul would address the church as the saints who which are at Corinth. Holy, that's the word saints. Called out, called out of darkness, called into light, into the kingdom of light. Set apart, that's the word holy. Sanctified, that's the word holy. Walking in the light as Christ is in the light. That's holy. Christians come out of a world system that is differently characterized. It's characterized by darkness, by lies, by untruth, and yet Christians come into a new kingdom characterized by holiness and truth and love. We are to live redemptively, In fact, the Bible says we are to pursue holiness and peace with all people, apart from which you will not see the kingdom of God. The second practical outwork of the church being a covenant community is that the very center of covenant life is worship. The fellowship and the communion that we have with God in Christ, when we have fellowship with God finds its very fountainhead and springfold out of the central part of Christian corporate worship centered around this table that we refer to as communion. The center of corporate life is a corporate worship as the people are unified in one body. And that's why the Lord's Supper, which we refer to as communion, which actually has the term incorporated into it, is a high part of our worship and our blessing that we have as the body is united to Christ. The cup of blessing is a cup which is identified with covenant blessings. This meal has been referred to as a covenant renewal meal. Corporate worship centered around the Lord's table is the fountainhead of all of the life of the church here upon the earth. It's the fountain, it's the, it's the place, it's the springhead from which everything else of the church life flows is right here, right now, going on. We are right we are drinking from the fountainhead. All Christian ministry flows out from here. All Christian evangelism, it flows out from here. All Christian love, it flows out from here. Everything flows out of our fellowship and communion with God in Christ in worship, and therein we have fellowship one with another, as our fellowship with God. So, if our worship is off, or if biblical worship is marginalized or it's minimized, everything else in life is going to be off. This is like what sets the trajectory. This is the river that comes out from the throne of God that then goes out throughout all of the rest of the world. It is from here we have life that we can go out into the world and take dominion, but we have to come back. But it should be a great delight to do so. That is why it's so detrimental when God's people are not in relational harmony with one another. When that communion and that fellowship, when that familial bond and that relationship with one another is off, and then we come to the Lord's table acting like it is, and we have communion as one body with one Lord, and we come together as one wife with her husband, but yet we are not in community with each other or relational harmony? God looks upon that with great disfavor. He sees right through it, and this is part of the judgment He even brings The chastening upon his people. That's covenantal. That's a covenantal principle. Blessings for faithfulness, curses for unfaithfulness, and that should encourage our faithfulness. It's this love working through faith. Which brings me to the third practical aspect of the church as a covenant community, and that is that Christians, we share life together. The word share, again, is a translation of the word koinonia. We fellowship with life together. We partake of life together. Partake of the life of Christ together, and we partake of the life of each other together. This is Christian love. This is a love, this is the agape love that the world does not know. It is a love that is something that is supernatural and only comes from God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and we are called to live this way with each other. It's a love that works through faith. That is the familial aspect that makes our baptism faithful, or makes us faithful to our baptism. Every time we have a baptismal service, we always call each other to be faithful to remember your baptism that means call it to mind of what everything it means and bring it into your present experience of all that it entails it is a call to unify us in christ in that covenant bond and so that not only is that legal aspect ratified but our familial bond with each other is consistent with what we say is true in our heart with the lord And this is where all those one another passages come in in the Bible. We share life together. We share and partake of our life, of our time, our love, our goods. Church is a family, and you've got to embrace that principle. Christ calls us brothers. God calls us His children. We are to approach Him as Father. This is called the household of faith. Where Christ is our head. And that is why biblical conflict resolution in the body of Christ is not optional. It is quintessential for maintaining the integrity of the church and really who she is by definition. That's why one of the greatest sins that you and I could ever commit against the body of Christ is to bring divisions or factions into the body. God calls that in Proverbs an abomination. The body is one, and love needs to be apparent in every member. Every member in the body. That's why all those one another's instruct us. We have negative attitudes that we're warned against. Let us not be conceited provoking one another, envying one another. No, but we are rather positively to have peace with one another. Be kindly affectionate to one another. Give preference to one another. Esteem others better than yourself. Have the same mind with one another. Bearing with one another. Submitting to one another. Considering one another. Being compassionate with one another. And in our response, we are not to judge one another, bite and devour one another, lie to one another, Hate one another. Do not speak evil of one another. Do not grumble against one another. That's like the world. But rather to wait for one another and be kind to one another. Forgiving one another even for Christ's sake that God has forgiven you. Yes? Bearing with one another. See, it's living out of the communion with God as is expressed in the way we live this community and this covenantal life in fidelity to the very spirit of what this is all about. But when we're out of sorts with communion with one another, it actually jeopardizes everybody. That's that's again that's covenantal. We're all in this together. We've got to all work it out together. That's not optional. It's not optional. We all have sins. We all have blind spots. We all have work to do in this area. But we should be, be helping one another. That's why the Scripture says, Admonish one another and, and speak the truth to one another in love. But we are obligated before God to live this thing out faithfully. To ensure that conflicts and cold and distant relationships are addressed and dealt with. Because when they're not, we're all in it together. One bad apple in the bunch, like Aiken, can ruin the whole lot. So that's why there's a high level of commitment needed to live this out faithfully. Faithfully to God and to the principles He's given us in His Word to one another. And that's why we're exhorted not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but as we come together, we are to provoke one another to love and good deeds. That brings me to a fourth practical aspect of the church being a covenant community. And that is that the community is a principle in which we have to live in close proximity to each other to even practically function as a body. You as a family can't practically live functionally as a family if dad is gone from you know, three weeks out of the month, and the children are all spread out, and and the wife goes to work, and there's just you. You practically you're not going to live that out functionally. In fidelity to what even the definition of family would be. Well, the church is the same thing. We're, we have to live in close proximity to one another in order to function faithfully as a body. See, body life occurs all the time and the very organic nature of the body is often an unstructured and, and unplanned. When one member has an emergency or a problem, we need to be there for one another. It was really great to see, in a great illustration yesterday, to, to see out on Highway 50 a, a bunch of men coming together doing some very hard and Uh, dangerous work to clear trees in in a long path and they had a heart and a mind to work. One another. While somebody else was over here mowing the yard to the barn for you today, while other people were out making meals for other people in our church, and someone helping someone with a car problem. Those are the only four categories I know all in a single day here yesterday. And so you have to live in close proximity for that thing just to naturally become a part of life. And that's why I'm very thankful that we came here 13 and a half years ago Why you've come here to be a part of this work. That we have the ability to be faithful in that familial aspect because we live close to one another. That's why this doesn't happen in a commuter church. See, life is a relationship. John 17, 3, Jesus makes it very clear that eternal life, this is eternal life, that they may know You, Heavenly Father, He's praying and Jesus Christ whom you sent. Eternal life was defined by Jesus as this relationship. And living together is about relating to one another. It is faith working in love. It is love working through faith. But for that to happen, people have to live in community. A commuter church, which we are so... Used to for whatever our little secondary distinctives are, or for whatever the reasons are, it really disembodies the body of Christ, whereas a, a community church embodies it because it is the body. A commuter church promotes a consumer model where we can drive by all the other churches that may not quite have what we want, so we can get better options and choices sixty miles down the road than we have within 30. And I understand there's some exceptions to all these, but as a as a principle and as a model, a community church embraces a communion and a fellowship model. A commuter church, where people have to travel an hour or two to get to church every Lord's Day, lacks the rootedness and therefore identity that is so critical to the church being salt and light in the kingdom in this world, To have the effectiveness of ministry that flows from her out into the world around her. But a community church is itself a community rooted in a place and with an identity. And so we can invite neighbors to church because they live in our community. The church is a covenant community, and the faithful model of what the church is and how life ought to be lived out is this, this covenant group of people that God has taken and pulled together to live as a separate and subculture from the world, but yet still in the world, but yet the salt and the light that she needs to be. The very focal point of everything that comes out starts with worship, And it flows out of the life of Christ around this table and flows through God's people out into the world around us and with each other we see this great koinonia and the love of Christ working its way out. And by this they will know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. This is an essential aspect of our vision for the church because we see it as God's vision For every church. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven. How thankful we are. For the life that we have in Christ. The life that we have with one another. As we walk in the light with you. We're thankful for this Christian society. This Trinitarian way of living. Where we share with one another. Life as a family of God as love is being given and, and shown and displayed and received back again, where relationships are, are mended and where we see that the redemptive life of Christ is applied to us. How thankful we are for the work that You've given us to do here. And we're thankful for the body that You've established here by grace. And we pray that we would live faithfully in the familial bonds of love one with another as we love our Lord Jesus Christ so lead us in the path of righteousness for your namesake where we are falling short where we are not living faithfully as we ought square us up show us where we need to lean into or repent and confess those matters and and to get right so that we come to the table each Lord's day in one spirit in one body as we come unified in our faith and bound together in this covenant love. And so we pray that you would bring forth the fruit that you would be pleased with in Jesus' name. Amen.